three preachers out fishing bright and early one morning, not me, but three preachers discussing their sermon notes for Sunday morning. And after they found a good spot and cast their nets, one of them suddenly remembered he left his lunch on the shore. Stepping out of the boat, he walked casually to the shore, retrieved it, and returned to the boat. Then the second preacher remembered that he left his tackle box on the shore. He repeated the first man's exploit. The third preacher sat stunned by the walks on the water. He said, whoa, my God, what's going on here? So he announced that he left his hat on the shore, stepped out of the boat, and splash, splash, splash. And the first preacher turned to the other and asked, do you suppose we should have shown him the rocks to step on? Unlike the people in this scenario, Jesus really walked on water. Be assured of that. <laughs> it's okay. And the real thing, and he's again demonstrating his power over the nature of creation. The walking on water has been a cliché in our day, a topic of jokes even among Christians. And what can make a, a miracle seem trite as in the musical drama, Jesus Christ Superstar, which is not a gospel truth story. It's a good music filled with good music, but it is a distorted message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where Herod taunts Jesus, would you like to walk across my swimming pool? Mark's gospel definitely isn't trite about the story of Jesus walking on the water. It's very important. Neither is the biography of Jesus written by the apostles or disciple Mark as told by the apostle Peter. It's not a yawner. It's not one that, oh, I wish it was finished. <gasps> That's how we treat the gospel. We should ask for forgiveness when we treat the gospel like that. Look at Mark's gospel, how it begins. Driving out demons, healing people, teaching people, still in the storms. Jesus having famine in the desert for 40 days, going without food and drink. And then you have the feeding of the multitudes and the sexual dance of the young girl and, and the cutting off of the head of John the Baptist. This is definitely not a yawner. And it's not trite as well. Then he feeds the multitude, 5,000 people plus children and women. And now he walks on water. Definitely not a yawner. See, many people fail to understand what's going on here in the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. The question that Mark asked us way back in chapter 4 is still before us today. Who is this guy? Who is this man that can steal the storms, walk on water, cast out demons, and bring people back to life again? Who is this person? Some of you will say he's a savior. Well, it's half an answer. Half an answer. He's not just the savior. He is the king of glory. He's the king of glory. This is what Jesus tries to tell us in this episode that we're quite familiar with, that Jesus walks on the water. But before we go there, Jesus retires to pray. But before he prays, as was read by Pastor Betty, he does a few things. He gets his disciples, and he makes them get in the boat 
and said, go over to Bethsaida. Go to the other side. In other words, get out of here. <laughs> and then when he get, tells them to get out of here, he turns to the crowd and he dismisses the crowd and says, you get out of here. Remember, these are the disciples who told the crowd to get out of here, send them away. And now they're both sent out of the way. So Jesus can retreat to time with the Father to speak to him alone. And he sends them on their journey there. And this is the only time that Jesus prays on the mountaintop in the Gospel of Mark. And when Jesus goes on the mountaintop, it should be a reflection of all the episodes that you read about in the Old Testament, because you should read the Old Testament of where God's glory shines, where God meets his people, where God speaks to his people, where God instructs his people, where God commissions his people. So he retires to pray, escaping the misguided popularity of the crowd who seek Jesus only to get their bellies full, only to get their wants and wishes and their Christmas list from Jesus. He misses out on them, and John's gospel about the feeding of the 5,000 makes that clear. They're only going after him because of what he gives to them. Hello? They misunderstood his teaching. Not only the people that are present in the crowds, but even his closest companions are misunderstanding the teaching of Jesus. They don't get who he is. They only understand, look what he gives me, not who he is. Jesus sought God's kingdom and his righteousness. He didn't seek a popularity contest. Being the church, the people of God, the body of Christ, whatever metaphor you want to use, is not about being popular. It's about serving the king as the king served us. Jesus is withdrawing from the toxicity of the crowd. It's poisonous. It's contagious. It's worse than COVID-19 when you get around people like that. So he's beginning to withdraw, and he wants to go to the Father, and he wants to have this quiet time. He wants no part of a popularity contest, and neither should the church or the servants of God. Jesus enters the place of prayer, and he begins to open up his heart. We don't even know what he said, but we know that he did it. And just as a sidebar, in a recent article in Christianity Today, Lynn Bob writes, yes, Jesus told us to pray in secret, but he also prayed with his friends. Piggybacking on what Pastor Betty said, because she didn't know what I was going to say. It's not just I pray at home and my spiritual life is private. There's no such thing as a life in Christ that is private. It is both private and public. Both. Not either or, but both and. Did you know in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, when David was putting the plans of the temple together, that they needed 38,000 Levites to be ready to lead worship in the temple? That shows you that you can't do it by yourself. We need each other to worship God. We need to gather as God's people. And my outlook on this COVID season is even more drastic than Betty Zena, my wife, Pastor. Betty, sorry, Betty. But anyway, I thought that something as tragic as this would have brought us together to Christ on our knees together. It's been since August that we've been on Wednesday nights. Since August, almost a year, 10 months now, where God is trying to speak to us 
to come together, to carry each other's burdens, to fall on our faces and say, Lord, these medical professions and scientists, they don't got a clue what they're doing and we're their guinea pigs. We want to be your guinea pig, Lord. I said my piece. But I think the book of Acts gives us a window on praying together. They prayed together in the upper room. They prayed together in chapter 4. They prayed together in chapter 10. They prayed together in chapter 13. And prayed together in chapter 15. And on it goes and on it goes. They prayed together. Do you get it? Not isolated lone rangers. She goes on to say that interceding in community is vital to the Christian life. How's your praying together? Jesus is alone. It's in prayer with the Father. And then he lifts his eyes. How we could see that far, I don't know. But he sees his disciples struggling. He gets interrupted in prayer. The way that we interrupt him in prayer. He's praying right now. He's the great high priest. He prays the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He intercedes forever. Right, Hebrews? He's praying, and we interrupt his schedule, and he listens to us. He listens to us. He doesn't get nasty like we get nasty. Don't you know I was praying now? Don't you know I was listening to that, that music to soothe my soul? No, he listens. He listens. He sees them on the lake, and they're having difficulties, and he's not with them this time. They're alone. Remember last time he was with them, but he was asleep. <laughs> This time, he's not even with them. And yet, when the Lord Jesus is physically absent from his followers, he retains a stake in their dangerous journey. Hello? Even when we don't think God is with us, he has his life input in you. He cares for you. So he sees them, and then he's on the move. He's beginning to go to them. Because when Jesus notifies that we need help, he comes to us. I'm certain of that. No matter how much you like faith to believe it, I believe it for you today. That when we are struggling, like these disciples on the sea, Jesus is coming to us. This is their second sending voyage. Remember Pastor Betty Dell would send them, the 12 out in pairs, and they went out to cast out demons, they went to heal the people, they went to save the people, whatever you want to put in there. They were commissioned by Jesus to do something, and this is before Pentecost even takes place in the book of Acts. Usually in the Gospel of Mark, it says, come after me. Now Jesus says, go before me. See, it's so hard to make one verse, a cliche verse of our lives with Jesus. Sometimes Jesus says, you go ahead. I can catch up. You know, I'm faster than Superman or Flash Gordon, that's for sure. Did you? And they go ahead of them. So this is a second commissioning. And did Jesus know that a mighty wind would stop them from advancing? I don't know. We don't really know the answer. But it's a good question, right? Why would Jesus send them out ahead of them without him if he knew that they were going to encounter a strong wind in which they can make no headway on the waters? The disciples failed to understand that the authority that they were imparted with for the first sending was also available for them to battle the winds. Why did they believe they can cast out demons and heal the sick and not tell the wind to be quiet and be still and be calm? It's the same authority that was given in the first sending. Why aren't you implemented in the second sending? 
We like to say we're not perfect. We're imperfect people. But no matter how imperfect we are as children of God, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Are we not? Imperfect, but empowered. We need to move away from that negativity as if God hasn't given us any power at all. Disciples were in a storm because they were being obedient to Jesus. Hello? It was Jesus who compelled them to get in the boat. It was Jesus who said, get out of here. Go on your way. It was the Spirit that led Jesus through the wilderness after his baptism. Remember that? That's why you need to read back on Mark to understand where you are today. As Jesus' identity was confirmed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, Jesus is now confirming the ministry of his disciples at the first sending and now in the second sending, that they now are agents of the kingdom of God, agents of the mission of God. And Jesus sends them ahead with full expectation that they wield the power to assent and assert God's dominion over the demonic forces of the sea. Because the picture of the sea in Old Testament liturgy and even the New Testament liturgy is always a pace of chaos and evil and violence and so on and so on. And Jesus sends them out there with the authority to tell the waves and winds, you have no authority over me. The same way that he talked to them about casting out demons and healing the sick. But they don't get it. And neither do we. Neither do we. That's why Marx writes the story. So when you find yourself in the disciple situation, you begin to pray to God and say, God, what have you given to me to be a reflection of you in this world today? So as Jesus was sent into the wilderness to battle the demons, so the disciples were sent to travel through the demonic forces of the sea. And let me just say at this point, this is not overblown self-confidence, okay? I'm not talking about going to Anthony Roberts and getting a pep rally and a pep talk or going to a preacher who's a pep talk preacher. This is something Jesus gave to each child of God, each one who has bowed their knee to King Jesus. Everyone has this power. You know why? Because Jesus didn't call me to fake it till I make it. Hello? That's a sad picture of the church. Fake it till I make it. Well, I got power. I don't know if I got power. Afraid of anything that looks like God might come upon us and power and floor us and keep us here for the rest of the day. I'm going to experience pressure in this world. I know that. Do you? But Jesus has already conquered the world. Do you know that as well? And what does the Apostle Paul say to the Corinthians? Not with the weapons of this world. Or the psalmist, not with horses and chariots and the weapon trees of the kings of that age, but by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ Jesus. Surrendering all that thinking, that sticking thinking, as one friend used to tell me all the time, and bring it to the feet of Jesus and say, I want to walk in your obedience. I want to walk in your victory. I want to walk in your triumph. We're going to be placed in similar situations as the disciples. Jesus sends them off in the ministry across the globe or at home, or whether he sends us across the globe or at home. And like the disciples, at times we're going to be straining at the oars. He ho, he ho. I'm not making any headway. 
I haven't moved an inch, Lord. Help! And he's up on the mountain. He sees him and he's walking. Hee-ho, hee-ho, getting nowhere. How many of you feel like that? Be honest. The culture winds that come at us. The climate winds that come at us. The economic winds that come at us. The religious winds that come at us. Hee-ho, hee-ho. I've been coming every Wednesday and every Sunday, Lord. I've been coming five days a week. I'm not moving forward, Lord. Church, wake up. All of the power has been given to you. Imperfect I am, but I'm empowered by the king. Hello? Hello? And they're not all fishermen. Some of them are thieves. Some of them are tax collectors. Some of them are political people hiding out with Jesus. So let's not say that they've all been on the sea before. They haven't. The high winds are coming. Nine hours in. Hee-ho! Hee-ho! Nothing. Exhausted. They can't make any headways. Now, at this point, they're not worried about making it to Bethsaida. Remember, they're on their way to Bethsaida. They're thinking about, am I going to be alive after this? Am I going to be alive? It's a matter of life and death. And our life on this earth is a matter of life and death. Don't take it lightly. And our work for the Lord is a matter of life and death. It's important. They strain and they strain and Jesus comes walking at 4 o'clock. In the morning. See, love, I wake up at 4 o'clock for a reason. I'm not a ghost. I'm your husband. In the, so beware of that. As Jesus empowered the disciples for the first journey, he's empowered them for this one. But this one's a total failure. Disciples fail to recognize who he is. It's unrecognizable. They thought a, a ghost was coming at them. And then it tells us, at the last verse of the other part of this passage, that Jesus didn't even attempt to stop by. He was going to pass them by. Maybe they started crying here, pass me not, O gentle Savior, <laughs> to get Jesus' attention. You know, Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. But guess what? When Jesus heard them, he passed by. It wasn't his intention. So sometimes we can get God's attention when he at times wants to pass us by. If we call out to him, he'll hear our cry and he will meet us where we are. There's a lot of allusion going here to Old Testament text, especially Moses and the Exodus and something like that, that what is unrecognizable becomes recognized through Jesus Christ and is coming towards them. Sometimes when those revival meetings come and we don't know what's happening, it's God. Sometimes when you say, oh, well, I should have gone to the altar today, it's God. Some, sometimes when you say, you know, I should have gone to that prayer time, you know. I should have gone there on Wednesday night. I had free time. You know, not every Wednesday, but every once in a while. My schedule opens up. I should have been there. It's God. And instead of Jesus passing you by, you pass Jesus by at times. Not all the times, at times. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about God is speaking to you specifically. And you decide to walk in the opposite direction. Jesus speaks to them. He says, take courage. 
or in other words, cheer up, what the English like to say. Cheer up, yeah. Hee-haw, hee-haw, the winds. And this guy comes like looking like a ghost, says, cheer up, yeah, cheer up what? Cheer up. Can you imagine that? I would have liked to see what Peter really said that moment. Cheer up. It's I. I am the I am. Putting jokes aside, Jesus is the first responder to the crisis. My heart was saddened that the church was not looked upon as an essential responder in this COVID. That people, that part of the sacramental theology is to be with the sick when they are dying. We're not allowed to be with them by the government. Even if they were willing to be all dressed up in all that scientific enclosure, they were not allowed to be with them, which shows you that this world and this government and this nation doesn't really care about your faith. Right? They wouldn't even let us in on the situation of life and death. So Jesus is there. He's speaking to them. He's delivering them like he delivered the nation of Israel. He's parting seas in the metaphorical sense. But at this time, he doesn't rebuke them like he did in chapter 4. He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith. Because these guys have really got energy in it. And it came to my mind this morning that they're still in the boat together. They're not going in different directions. They're just having a hard time to make headway. But they're still together and they're still rowing together. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus does rescue them, but he doesn't take them away from rowing. They continue to row. But this time, Jesus is with them. He, and now, wow, a couple of feet. Boy, we're, we're about 30 meters out or whatever you call it, knots. You get what I'm saying? They still had to continue what they did before Jesus arrived. But this time, with Jesus in the boat with them, Something changes. When the church realized that it's not on our own strength, that we move the body of Christ forward, then we will make headway. But as long as we're, hee-ho, I'm so tired, we're not getting anywhere. You won't get anywhere. You won't get anywhere. Keep rolling. Imperfect, but remember, empowered. Empowered. Uh, and then we come across these words. And they had not understood the loaves. We're on the water. We're dead tired. And now you're bringing back the feeding of the 5,000. What are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean? Well, he's trying to say to them, if you believe that I can feed 5,000, if you believe I can feed your belly, if you believe I can put clothes on your back, why can't you believe that you have power over the demonic world of the sea? Why? Why do we believe this category but not that category? Why? Shouldn't we believe that the Jesus who fed the 5,000 can also walk on the water? He is the Lord of sea and sky and land. Jesus' way of teaching is very Jewish. He doesn't get up in the mornings and run around and say, hey, fellas, I'm the Messiah. Guess who I am? I'm the second person of the Trinity. Some of you are probably still saying, who's that? But he employs the stories that are familiar 
to us. Psalm 107 that talks about Yahweh who controls the wind and the sea. He's walking by the water, reveals that Jesus is like the I am who walks by the burning bush and displays his power and his personality and his character to Moses. He travels from the land on the mountaintop praying, and he travels on the sea, just as he left his glories of heaven to come into the human condition to save us. Because the word of the Lord is not a printed page, my friends. Hello? The word of the Lord is not a printed page. What do you read in John chapter 1? And the word became flesh. The printed page helps us see Jesus, but it is not the word. The word is Christ incarnate. Because humanity after the fall was deficient and had a deficit of glory. And then Jesus, when he entered humanity, returned the glory that was lost in the fall. And now there is a restored glory. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, he's changing me from glory to glory, which means I've already entered glorification. The glory has been already restored. And I'm working towards the fullness of that glory. But dignity has been restored to humanity because Christ became human. Or Christ became flesh. See, Jesus does not save us from the outside our situation or from outside our situation, but from within our situation. Daniel in the lion's den. Did Jesus stay outside? No, he was in there. It was another person. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace. Who was with him? Jesus is in your situation. Don't go looking outside the borders of your own confining, your own living space, in the own place where you roam throughout the day. He is with you in the situation. That's where he rescues you. He had to become human to rescue humanity. Hello? Apostle Paul said that one man got us in trouble. This is the message. But the next person, Jesus Christ, got us into life. Anybody have life today? Life. Life. Doesn't mean that I'm not going through troubles. Doesn't mean that my health is perfect. I'm imperfect, but I'm empowered, and I got life. Eternal life. See, our pursuit of Jesus, when you begin to examine your life, would only reveal his pursuit of you. Did you get that? Our pursuit of Jesus, our searching after Jesus, our moving towards Jesus, at the end of the day would only reveal that, wow, he was the one that was speaking to me all along. I was traveling that road and that journey, the massless road journey. It's a story of every Christian being who thinks they woke up one morning and, and they found Jesus and haven't realized that Jesus actually found them and was with them on the journey. God is the one that still pursues us in our crisis, in our hardships. Then as we move to the end of the narrative, I think Mark brings it clear that we are never alone. You're never alone. They don't get to Gennesaret. I mean, they get to Gennesaret instead of Bethsaida, rather. They were supposed to be in Bethsaida, but now they're in Gennesaret. What's going on? Well, you know, anybody that's traveled at the sea or tried to swim across the sea, you're never going to end up directly across where you intended to go. The winds blew you somewhere else. But you know what? It doesn't matter where God blows you. You minister there. Right? 
It doesn't matter to us leaving Mississauga and then going to Busingen, Germany, and then going to Schaffhaus in Switzerland, and going to Milano, Italy, and then Orkney, and then little places in Scarborough and Oakville and Toronto, and then here in PI. It doesn't matter where the wind blows me. God's with me to minister. It doesn't change the way I minister underneath the kingship of Jesus. Do you follow me? The story speaks to a church in trouble. People, the church, generally speaking, in trouble. Well, we're quick to say, I'm imperfect, I'm a sinner. But nobody raises their hand, I'm empowered. <laughs> Hello? Let's be honest here. Oh, that belonged to the good old days. What? Isn't he the same God that was here yesterday, today, and forevermore? It speaks to a church being sent off course by strong winds and waves, a pandemic and economic crisis and political crisis and wars, and it's difficult to make any, dip, any headway in our world. Hee-ho, hee-ho. Jesus is coming to us. If we would just wake up, and even at the moment you see a blur, because I got this little shadow on the corner of my eye that gets in the way, and sometimes I think it's a branch falling on my head, but it's not. It's my own eye playing tricks with me. If I would just stop and say, Lord, what are you doing? Where are you coming from? Where can we go from this point to fulfill your mission, to reach the ends of the earth? You know why the book of Acts ends abruptly? Because we're supposed to finish it. And all the scholars try to say, look, what type of finish is this? Don't you hate those shows that they just end and you don't know what's going on next? Well, that's the way God works. You get on the boat and you begin to hee-ho, and you make a story. And somebody else makes a story. And then we all make a story. There was a little boy who was afraid of the water, was playing in the sand along the shore when his father offered to give him a ride on his shoulders. It seems like something I would do if I could swim, but I can't swim, so I wouldn't do this. The boy climbed upon his father's shoulders, giggling with delight, but laughter turned to tears when he felt his father stride into the waves. He watched the water rise around him and begged him to return to the shore. You picture this little kid screaming now, right? And the father saying, no, you're not. You're coming with me. No, that's not how our father would do it anyway. He begged him to return to the shore, but his father held him tightly in pace and spoke some reassuring words to him. When the boy realized that he was secured by his father's strong arms, he relaxed. Church, that's what we need to do. We need to relax in the spirit of the living God and begin to enjoy the ride that God has put us on. You know, the little boy's fear of water never returned. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of who shall I be afraid? As the worship team comes forward.